and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And we have actually two shows this evening. Actually, if you're on YouTube, you're going to want to jump over to Brandon Fugel at 8 o'clock. Now, it's funny. I changed the information on that, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four days ago in the platform that I use for all the streams and uh, showed that it was changed there, but it was not. It was showing that it started at 6 p.m. on YouTube. So I apologize for that. Not sure how that happened. But anyway, he's coming up at 8 o'clock. And the guest I have now is a great guest that I had on a previous, I don't know, year and a half ago or so. And it's Graham Rendell from the UK. And he's a real great uh, UFO nuts and bolts researcher. And he is coming up on this show in just a few minutes. So a couple things. Um, the blog this week from Charles Lear is Letters from Maori Island Principals in the 1967 Merseyside UFO Bulletin. So check that out on podcastufo.com. And uh, I do want to thank all the supporters. I want to thank all the listeners as well. Anyone can help us out. We have to pay for certain things like graphics and blogs and things like that. So anyone can help us out at Patreon. And that link is over on our website, podcastufo.com. So we're supposed to have, it's kind of, I've been trying to find out information. There's supposed to be a hearing tomorrow um, from the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office is what it's called now. Uh, open, closed. Uh, I'm not really sure. I heard it was a public uh, you know, te- there was going to be public testimony and et-, et cetera. I think at least one person is, is giving testimony, but I can't find out any f- information about that. Maybe if you were going along here and someone in chat can, uh, enlighten me a little more on that, that would be great. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, it will be another interesting time. I do believe that our government is appearing to take this subject seriously and I hope they are. And so I think I'm going to move ahead. And just remember that uh, this show is going to go to about 7.50 or so p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And then we're jumping over to Brandon Fugel, the other show, at uh, 8 o'clock sharp over there. So join us over there after this one, if you would. Um, if you're listening to the audio, you'll get both of these in the uh, audio podcast. Um, so you can listen to them on any type of media that you listen to our show on. And Graham, welcome to the show. Hello, Martin. Thanks for the, to inviting me back. It's great to be back. Yes, here. and yeah, I think it's what, uh, is it midnight there? It's midnight. It's just, yeah, it's just gone midnight in the UK. So yeah, uh, yeah. fresh yeah, and daisy. Well, <laughs> I remember last time I had you on, I was like really impressed. So I'm really glad well, to you. have you, you back on again. And uh, the people that are watching this live, uh, they're going to wonder what they're looking at in your background. Uh, so it's a book cover. It is, yeah. It's, it's part of the cover of the of the new book, uh, Intercept and Identify, Aerial Encounters, uh, 1953 and 1954. So that's the latest in a series of books that I've written about pilot and aircrew encounters of UFOs since basically the, the, the early 1940s. And what is this particular image of? What is that encounter? So this is from October 1954, and it's a, a Gloucester Meteor pilot, so it's an RAF pilot, who encountered this particular object over the south of England uh, on, on a training flight. Hmm. Hmm. And um, and that is that was it caught on any type of radar or anything like that? 
Not this particular case. The um, the, the the pilot, he, he's the only one that actually saw it, and you know he, he he came back to base. He reported it. He reported it to the squadron's intelligence officer, who later on, a few a few years down the line, actually became the um, one of the editors of Flying Saucer Re uh, of uh, Review in the uk that you know the, the, the ufo magazine so it was quite it was quite strange actually how, how that linked up and if that had never if that a person hadn't been you know that the, the to, hadn't become an editor of flying saucer uh, review then that case may never have come to light because he was the one that kind of pushed it if you like uh, and uh, you know printed details of it so this was back in a time when the raf were clamping down on pilots talking about their UFO sightings. They were told not to talk to the press um, about this sort of time, 1954. Um, beforehand, there'd been a few who had actually managed to have interviews with the media, with the BBC and with, with other, um, you know, on, on film uh, newsreels. Hmm. But uh, at, at one particular time, the RF and the Ministry of Defence decided to clamp down on these releases of information. So everything had to go through, you know, more official channels. And of course, you know, when the press asked about these kind of things, then they just got denials. Um, you know, also you, as we know and love, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the kind of you know the, the story that uh, went through the 1950s and 1960s and onwards. That you know, just all these categoric denials that anything was actually happening. I wonder how many things we missed because of that. Oh, there'd be lots of, of stories that went unreported. Um, if you look at the kind of the stigma that started, not just in Britain, but also in the United States, um, there's a story in, in, in Flying Saucer Fever. Uh, that's the previous book to this one that, that deals with 50 to 52 cases of Edward Ruppelt, who was the first director of Blue Book. And he was on a, on a flight uh, that had a layover for a couple of hours at Chicago, I believe. And um, he got talking to the crew of the aircraft that he was flying on. It was a scheduled airliner. And they, they saw his Air Force uniform that, and he was asking him about UFOs. And they were initially dismissive. But then when they found out he was actually you know, the head of the investigation uh, project, then they, they warmed to him. And they actually got a, it was an impromptu group, of, um, a, a meeting that was arranged in a coffee shop nearby. And there was various pilots from different airlines turned up and had a chat with Rupelt. Um, but they were saying to him then that because of the stigma and, and you know, they just weren't going to report these cases. Um, so you, you take it from there and also the military side of things where if somebody reports something and then they're told afterwards, well, it's, it's Venus or it's a weather balloon, then they're not going to like report it again, are they? Or if their squadron mates, you know, see this kind of thing happening, then why, why would you cause you know, yourself so much hassle? You just keep quiet about what you saw, and that's really what happened. So the, there's a you know countless probably countless numbers of cases which will have gone unreported, and people have just kept quiet about them over over the years, and, and especially back then. Well, you know, it's in every aspect, not just the military, where people have for years, you know, felt uh, threatened, or you know, they didn't want to be called a nutcase. Yep. So uh, you know, I mean, we're at a time now where I believe that people aren't so you know, afraid to, of the ridicule factor anymore. And uh, I think it's a really good time. So, uh, so anyway, if you would, can you, uh, for the person that has never heard you before, can you give a little bit about your background and what got you interested um, yeah. in the UFO topic to begin with? 
Yeah. So um, I suppose if I go even further back than that, I, I was interested in aircraft from a really early age. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the age of four when I was given uh, model aircraft kits to, to basically keep me quiet uh, as, a, <laughs> as a rather precocious kid um, who was into everything. You know, I was a typical nerdy kid. If I, if I was interested in something, I wanted to know everything about it. So I learned a lot about aircraft just by getting books from the library and getting books for my birthday and all the rest of it. But I was also interested in science fiction from an early age. And I was I was an early reader and I was reading things like Isaac Asimov books, uh, novels when I was eight or nine years old. And of course, they had nice pictures of um, you know, artwork on the front of spacecraft. Uh, and, and all this kind of stuff. And my mother, bless her, um, she bought me a book that she thought was one of these books, uh, one of these science fiction novels. But it turned out to be a book about UFOs because it had a picture of a flying saucer on the front. And that got me hooked on this particular subject. So I was about eight or nine when that happened. And of course, the similar sort of things happened again, you know, read everything I could from the local library. When I exhausted that particular stock of books, then it was a city library. Uh, and so there was more books there and I was getting books for my birthday, etc. And it just went from there. But of course, this was this was in the late 1970s. So, you know, you're talking way before the, the internet age. And therefore, for somebody who's like, you know, um, uh, like sort of that kind of age, you have limited opportunities to be able to get into the subject beyond reading what you have in your local library. I didn't know about UFO newsletters in, in the United States. There were, you know, I didn't know how to even approach the people who ran them in, in the UK. So it was quite limited uh, uh, until much later on that I managed to you know, start doing a bit more about the hobby, uh, which you know, I had back then of, of UFOs and turned it into, well, not quite a career, but a, a writing career. Uh, so you know, I, I write books about them now. Uh, and that's only you know, much more recently that I've managed to do that. But yeah. um, you know, yeah. when I when I came, sorry when I came on the show last you know it was December twenty twenty one to speak to you about the Foo Fighters, that was when the three interests that I bit, uh, really had uh, of you know long standing interests that I've had came together. So that's um, aircraft, uh, World War Two secret weapons, the German secret weapons, and UFOs, and that came together with the Foo Fighters. Hmm. Wow! And the Foo Fighters, I I think it's such a fascinating thing. And just for, I have a lot of new people, they were back in 1945, right, or 46. Uh, I get them confused. I know the, the uh, Ghost Rockets. Um, yeah, the Ghost Rockets were 46. Yeah. yeah. But uh, they were during World War II. But when was the first Foo Fighter reported that you know of? Well, if you call them, if you're actually talking about Foo Fighters per se, as in that particular phenomenon, then the first reports were in about September 1944. The legend suggests that it was November 44, but actually it's much earlier. It's like several months earlier that the Americans start seeing things at night over Western Europe. But actually, if you're looking at UFOs just generally in World War II, then there are reports from as early as sort of May 1940 in the book that I wrote. But since then, I've been researching for maybe a follow-up to that book. And I'm finding things from RAF intelligence documents, which suggest that there were things going on as early as March 1940, which is really early in the war. And this wow. is even before the bombing campaign got you know, got going in earnest. They're being, um, RAF bombers are being followed by strange lights in the skies over, over, over Germany and over France. So, you know, things are really strange 
and they don't get a grip on what's happening. The intelligence people are just completely dumbfounded and they have no clue after months and months and even years of analysis. And they're just none the wiser. They think they're German aircraft, but they're not. Um, because they don't, um, you know, they don't try and shoot the bombers down. Uh, they just follow them, sometimes for hundreds of miles at a time. So it, it's really weird. And I'm still going through the intelligence files that I managed to find in in, in the archives. Um, but this is a case of, you know, people haven't done this before. But it's maybe just a case of also that people didn't know where some of these documents were. And I've, st I've stumbled across a lot of them. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting work. But it's also painstaking work, and it's going to take me a while to get get through everything. Okay, so someone just uh, gave me this information. Thank you, Wyatt. Uh, hello, Martin. The hearing tomorrow will be first held behind closed doors, and then the public hearing will start. So I'm going to try to follow that, and I uh, suggest anyone else interested in this topic may try to follow th that if you can find, um, you know, the links on online on how to actually watch that live. I'm sure. There'll be some, once it's public, it should be live, I would think. Uh, we'll we'll see. <laughs> be interesting anyway. Uh, and this just came about, you know, it's like, if I don't even know if uh, I could attend anything like that as if I wasn't a journalist, but it seems like if it's a public hearing that we'd be able to show up there. But I mean, it's funny. It's like all of a sudden, I think it was Wednesday of last week. Hey, there's going to be a hearing on the 19th. And yeah, it's it happened fast. It's been building for a while. I mean, there's been talk of it happening, and then the, the date came out. You know, came out came out in the blue a little while ago, and then the news that it was going to be as as you know, um, correspondent there says it was going to be a closed hearing to start with, and an open hearing afterwards. And apparently, that's not necessarily unusual. It just seems a bit strange. Um, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not that kind of versed on on American politics, so I'm not sure how kind of significant that is and, and, and what the ramifications are. But I'm sure it'll be all discussed to death afterwards, and I'll certainly be watching it live as well from here in the UK. Well, you're very uh, you're much better off not getting involved in American politics. Like <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so here's a question up here from Christopher: Are there surviving records of reports of Foo Fighters by German pilots? Oh, Christopher, there's, there's a good question. Um, every time that you, you see people commentating on the Foo Fighters, there's always this kind of statement of, well, the Germans saw them as well. Now, that's all very well to say, but proving it is a different thing entirely. There are anecdotal stories about German pilots who say they saw things, but there's no records that I know of. Um, but somebody might you know, come along and say, well, here's, here's a document that proves you're your wrong, grain." But I've never seen a document that actually translated says that you know the that here the germans are saying that they saw something they, they saw something strange but there are stories certainly and i do cover those in the book that i wrote called ufos before uh, before roswell and there's about maybe a half a dozen to a dozen stories um at different times during the war of german pilots saying they saw strange things but there's no documentation to do you know to go with them unlike the RAF side and unlike the america uh, the u.s army air force side so it's a different thing entirely there's also stories of about um, prisoners of war, uh, German prisoners of war, pilots who were, who were taken prisoner, who were telling their, their captors about things like this. But again, it's actually trying to you know, get those details um, in, in, in some kind of documentation form rather than just kind of word of mouth. Uh, because you know, we've all heard stories about certain things are happening, but until you actually get documents to prove it, then they, they are only stories. That's true. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, I re I really appreciate your work uh, because that's what you are looking for, and you wouldn't 
put it out there unless you had that information. So yeah. um, I think I do try to discriminate between the two things. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly include stories like that if they're if they're germane to the, the you know the, the thing I'm writing about. But I'll I'll try and discriminate between the fact that you know this is somebody just like coming up with a story or it's hearsay, and yeah. then this one's actually backed up by documents, and I'll point to where those documents exist, yeah. uh, so that people can do their own homework if they're like they can look to see where I've got that information from. But more importantly, Martin, they can see what the context of that information where it lies. So it's not just me cherry-picking certain words and certain phrases to try and kind of justify a narrative, because I don't really have a narrative in the books. Um, I'm not one who says, look, you know, I know what these things are. This is why. Um, I'll just say, look, this is what happened at the time. This is what was reported. You know, the reader makes their own mind up as to what I'm talking about. And I think that's a much more fairer way of doing it, because I really, at the end of the day, have as much clue or, or less clue than everybody else as to what's happening, you know, and I'm not afraid to say that. Yeah, I say that often on the show. It's almost like I almost seem to know less than I did yeah. when I started. But uh, anyway, it's such a curious topic, and I don't ever seeing see that myself getting tired of this topic. And, Me neither. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to just talk quickly about your books, UFOs Before Roswell, Dawn of the Flying Saucers, and... Uh, let's see, aerial, aerial and UFO and official investigations in 1946 through 1949. And then Flying Saucer Fever, aerial encounters between 1950, 1952. Intercept and Identify, aerial encounters 1953 through 1954. Of all those uh, books that you wrote in those, those time spans between each of them, what would you say that the 1950, 1952 was the most active when it comes to at least United States encounters? Or I think things were, yeah, I think things were building up really, you know, it was almost like a kind of pressure cooker um, that was going to explode. And, and that kind of, you know, situation almost ar arose in those two weekends in July 1952 when, um, when the you know, the U.S. Capitol was, I suppose, the words besieged by UFOs, right. um, and and of course, yeah, and the or air defenses didn't have a response to that. They were sending aircraft up, and the things were disappearing. And then, as soon as the aircraft you know were low on fuel and had to return to base, then they were back again. Um, and it, it showed the kind of inadequacy of, of, of American air defenses. I mean, that had already been proved just by, if you go through the cases that had happened in the, in the late 1940s and 1951, 1952, there was no um, kind of adequate response that the American interceptor fleets could do with these things that were being reported. But that was kind of writ large over Washington, D.C., because, you know, You've got your nation's capital, the, you know, the, the seat of democracy, and these things are flying over. You know, they, they can do what they like, and and your air force are basically powerless to stop them. Um, so yeah, things That's came right. to a head, didn't they? And the numbers of, of cases were, were were like multiplying, if you like. Now I'm sure some cases were copycats. And, and people were trying to get onto a bandwagon and try and get their names in the papers and all this kind of thing. Um, bearing in mind, I'm looking at aerial cases, but I'm, I'm ignoring the you know people on the ground who were seeing things up in the sky. But there were still thousands and thousands of sightings, and yet people were, you know, some people would have probably just tried to jump on a bandwagon. But when you actually boil the the aerial sightings down, 
you've got professional pilots, you know, airline pilots and crews mm -hmm. seeing things, and and they're you know effectively beyond reproach. You've got military aviators who are highly trained, um, you know, professional pilots, but also they're trained observers. Uh, you know, looking at right. things which are out of the ordinary, and because yep. their lives could depend on it sometime, and they're reporting sure. these things as well. And those numbers of cases are just going up and up until that weekend. But then, of course, you have this press conference that is hastily yeah. convened just after those weekends, right. and you've got you know, and you've got high-ranking U.S. Air Force. Um, a general comes up, and he's uh, he's he's high up in intelligence, uh, in air intelligence, and they're trying to put the lid on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're trying to dampen it all down, and they're trying to say that you know what was seen over Washington were radar, um, you know, in, in, sorry, temperature inversions, which were causing you know false uh, radar echoes, um, and that doesn't quite wash with a, the radar expert who's giving testimony uh, at the at the um, at the press conference as well. But the press basically lap it up and they accept it uh, because it's coming from some high-ranking officer, yes. and they go away. So that kind of does diffuse things a bit. But even so, the numbers of cases still get reported. It's not as if it just quietly, you know, sort of dies off and people stop and stop reporting them. In the in the years afterwards, you still get lots of reports again from professional, you know, um, from aviators. So I, yeah. I want to. I think it was. I want to say Sanderson was, but I can't remember who it was. The high-ranking officer you mentioned. But anyway, Sanford. I'd like to. Where was it, Sanders? Sanford. Oh, Sanford, that's right. Okay, I want to uh, I want to uh, kind of put uh, kill a myth here because I, I get a lot of people saying, well, what about these UFOs over Washington? Mm -hmm. And what this is, uh, a lot of people have seen this picture, and I'm going to put it in the show notes too, but you're seeing it live on YouTube, um, Twitch, and uh, Facebook right, right now. And that is that picture that you see when everyone shows Washington, D.C., July 12th, 1952, UFO sighting over UFO sightings over the Capitol, that is reflections of the lights in the camera. The reflections of the lights, they totally match up with the lights below in uh, the street lamps. And it's just what, it was an anomaly in the camera and everyone thinks those are the UFOs, that those are not the UFOs, just to let you know. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, and there's there are all types of a camera anomalies that people do think are UFOs. Um, there's a famous one in a diner, and it's a reflection of, you know, overhead lights on the window, yeah. you know, and that yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting time span. So, what do you of all the books that you have written? I'm just going to pop them up here. This is this one. This is behind you right now. That's 1953 to 1954. Um, and this one is 1946, is it, to 1949? That's right. And uh, this one is one I had up before, 1950 to 1952. Uh, what was your favorite book to write in all those? Oh, they they all have their moments. So you know, the, the the process of writing them is is the same each time. It's a kind of void of discovery. I guess every you know people who have looked at the historical record, they know about certain cases. So you know about the Thomas Mantell case. You, you know about maybe the George Gorman case. These are late late forties cases. But then you'll have other ones where you'll be aware of them in terms of maybe the, the location and, and maybe the rough date. But you might not know much about what happened. And then there'll be other ones which are just completely you know new. And that happened to me as well. 
uh, when I was researching these and when I was looking for the intelligence information and the other documents associated with the case to, to write about them. Uh, so it, it was, you know, it was it was really good for me, a process of writing about things which I knew I had some information on and I was aware of other cases, but some were just completely, you know, oh, oh this is just so exciting, you know, learning about things for the first time. So each of those books had that particular kind of, you know, thing to them. But I, I guess in, in terms of maybe the writing, the one I'm most kind of proud of, it would be the f the first one, Dawn of the Flying Saucers, in terms of chronological order, because that's the you know the dawn of this kind of modern day phenomenon that we're all you know interested in. It, it's not necessarily the first UFOs, but it's the ones that kind of break through into the kind of public psyche in so much as you know it, it becomes a phenomenon that everybody starts talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, so and it's these really early cases and the ones like you know the Thomas Mantell case, the George Gorman case, the, the Charles Whithead case from back then, these are all pilot encounters. They're all really, really interesting. You know, yes. people know about Thomas Mantell, about how he allegedly chased Venus or, 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 or a balloon yeah. to his death. But also you've got George Gorman who had a dogfight with a light over Fargo um, mm. in North Dakota um, one night. Um, and this thing, and effectively that could well be, you know, if that had been a few years earlier, that would have been classed as a Foo Fighter. You know, mm. so, and and yet they, they were trying to put that off as being some kind of maybe a military aircraft that had come over from Canada and was, you know, just um, sort of, you know, playing tag with, with, the, with the Gorman's uh, F-51 Mustang. Well, that didn't happen. But that's a story that was almost concocted as a possible explanation at the time. Of course, it was it was dismissed soon afterwards. But uh, and then I think another thing they said, oh well, it would be a weather balloon. That was another suggestion. Uh, you know, so what was he chasing? A, a weather balloon that was making head-on passes at his aircraft. So you know, it just doesn't add up. And you know, there was speculation that he went higher than his oxygen. Uh, Thomas Mantell here, yeah. Yes, well, Mantel. Thomas Mantell, yeah. yeah. There, there is speculation, but even then, when you look at the um, the testimony from the surviving pilots, it doesn't quite add up. Um, that there are some sort of discrepancies, and I cover these in the book. That in so much as one of the, one of the pilots was having trouble at twelve and a half thousand feet. Now, anoxia is quite a, th a thing in terms of you know pilots getting uh, oxygen deprivation. And it can come on really suddenly. And if somebody's having trouble at 12,500, and, 12 and, a half thousand, and yeah. then the, the records of they said they went up to 20,000 feet or, or, or just below that, then it, there's little chance that a pilot struggling at, at you know, much lower down would be able to get up to an altitude like that without a, 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 you know, a serious things happening, let alone Thomas Mantell climbing even higher up in, in, you know, afterwards, after a UFO. So there's parts of that story that don't quite add up. And uh, if people do look at the book, Dawn of the Flying Saucers, you'll see it all laid out blow by blow, and you'll see the testimony from the surviving pilots, and you can see where it doesn't quite sort of add up entirely. So there's there's something going on there um, that doesn't doesn't quite you know sort of tally too much. Uh, now that's not necessarily proof of, of UFO involvement, but it just shows that the story isn't exactly what everybody sort of suggests it is. Hmm. And your book that's 1946 through, is it 1949, I believe? Mm. Um, I'm sure Roswell's in there, but the funny, is it or is it not? Well, it's it's mentioned. It's not an aerial case because obviously that wasn't a pilot in aircrew oh, encounter. Yes. You see, it was, oh, just, that's it, true. Was a, it was a crash on oh, the ground. Yeah. But 
the way that I kind of address Roswell, and it's an outlier to me because I, I struggled to try and fit it into everything else that was going on then. Um, I'm not suggesting that Roswell didn't happen. It's just when you look at the intelligence documents and you look at everything else that was going on, you just wonder how it all fits in with like, so, you know, the creation of Project Sign. Um, now, I'm not necessarily a conspiracy theorist, but I understand that some people suggest that it was a cover-up going on behind the scenes. Uh, but, you know, it's just one of those things that I have to deal with you know, kind of facts as I see them. And I try to put things through in a, a fairly straightforward way. And I don't go too far down the kind of rabbit hole of, of conspiracy theories. Um, and in the introduction to the book and in the epilogue, I do touch on Roswell, but I, I basically hold my hands up and say, you know, where does this all fit in? I, I don't understand. So hopefully better minds than mine will come along and explain that someday. And hopefully we might get a resolution to Roswell in the future, but then again, we might not because unfortunately, you know, pretty much everybody who was associated with the actual incident now is dead. Yeah. Um, so in terms of eyewitnesses, so it mm. might be one of those things that just becomes a kind of urban legend, if you like, and, and everybody thinks that something happened there, but proving it's a completely different matter, unfortunately. I wonder what would have happened if Stanton Friedman didn't stumble across, it all happened, I believe he told me, when someone didn't show up for an interview or something, and when he was at a radio station and they said, oh, you got to talk to this guy over in Homer. That's right. Uh, yeah. You know, he's he claims he saw UFO. If that didn't happen that day, mm. I wonder what Roswell would be today. You know? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ifs, isn't there? It, it yeah. might have come out later on in a different way or it just may have not have. And yet there's so many people associated with it. It just took that kind of thing to break the ice, didn't it? And then everybody else yeah. came out of the woodwork um, and say, oh, yeah, I was I was, you know, I was part of that. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think I think it's a very interesting case. And but um, yeah, it has, like you said, it 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 can morph into I'm, I'm always kind of worried about things morphing into far away from the, the, the truths and the facts. You know, I mean, that's how things can seem to go into like their own, uh, you know, like something if it's in print, people think it's real, you know, that. That yeah. type of situation. And that's why I'm. That's why I'm really careful not to kind of speculate too much uh, about you know the origin of, of of these things that are being reported. I mean, I, you know, I, I've read books in the past where people have sort of you know tried to come up with a kind of agenda or a narrative, and then you'll see that they try to dance on the head of a pin to try and make you know facts suit what they're writing about. Yes, you know, yeah. we, we've all seen books like that you know over over the decades, yeah. um, and but. You know, when I when I first like embarked on writing these books, I was determined not to do that because the last thing I want is people going away thinking, oh yeah, he's just trying to sell something. He's trying to sell a story. He's trying to sell an idea he's got in his head, and that's the last thing from my mind. I'm basically putting down, you know, what the the in in detail. I guess when I looked at these books, some of these books in the seventies, you would see these write ups of some of the the cases that I've I've covered, but they would only be a paragraph. And me being this kind of sponge back then, yeah, I was always what desperate for more information about these cases. I wanted to know more rather than just you know two or three or six or seven lines about a case. And this is when I wrote these books. I thought, look, I'm trying to kind of throw everything I can in terms of particular cases at the reader, so they've got more information they know what to do with. But at least then you can make a much more informed kind of opinion as to what a case you know you know what it represents rather than just a few lines on on a page of a book. Right. Right now, I'm, I've been reading a manuscript from Chris Stiles about the Shelburne uh, 1960 incident and Shag Harbor, how they both mm -hmm. kind of 
they mingled together. So, and I even had Chris on my show. I'm going to be writing a forward for the book, but I even had Chris on the show where um, I said to him, well, didn't people see like uh, two crafts down and one was in danger? He goes, no, that's, that's Shelburne. Uh, Well, you know, I mean, it's a long, they're just mixed in together. Things and one blurred, happened in yeah. 1960 and one happened in 1967. And, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, when someone goes like on TV or whatever and they mix them together, it's so hard to undo it, you know? Um, so that is, those years are very interesting from 1946 to 1949 mm-hmm. as well. And uh, what are some of the cases that stand out, if you can recall? I know you have three, three sections, three books. It might be hard to pull one out of a hat, but uh, what can you recall that's an interesting case in that book? Well, I mean, I mentioned um, the George Gorman case there, so that was yeah. that was 1948. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go through a couple of others, really. You talk about the tick. You're talking about the modern day phenomenon. You talk about the tic tac. Now let, let's go back to uh, February 1949, and there was a, a training aircraft. It was a, a, an AT-11 Kansas. This was like a navigation trainer, and there was a crew on board this aircraft, and they saw something that they declared was actually sausage shaped. Um, the, the, the forward and the trailing ends looked like a B-29 nose, so it, w- it was a kind of like a cucumber shape, I guess. Now that could be misinterpreted. You know, could have been interpreted as a tic tac. That, that's your almost your classic cigar shape kind mm-hmm. of uh, you know thing that was that was a, a phrase that was used probably through the 60s and 70s, wasn't it? You know, I remember yeah. that from books I used to to read back then as well of descriptions of objects, and that now I suppose they call them tic tacs. So there's a case from back then that has that resonates today, and then you've got. Well, this comes from Flying Saucer Fever, this particular one. And we're looking at the Yellow Sea, which is which is off China, isn't it? Uh, and this is in about, um, I think this is October 1951. And there's a, the crew of a flying boat, of a U.S. Navy flying boat. And they see this thing, well, first of all, that one of the gunners sees it. And then it's picked up on radar. So this is a radar visual case. Um, and it's it looks almost like a MiG-15 fighter without the tail and without the cockpit. And they've actually got a drawing of it in the Blue Book files, um, but it obviously comes from grudge because it, 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 it took place before Blue Book was actually set up in March 1952. And then the intelligence people are trying the damnedest to try and reconcile this, thi- this, this strange craft with a MiG-15 to try and say, well, look, it's a, it's a, it's a MiG, it's a Russian fighter, um, even though the, the way it was seen would be almost beyond um, a, a Russian pilot being able to fly one of these fighters. Bear in mind, they had a very, uh, very small fuel load back in those days to get to where it, it was and get back home safely. But you can see why they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, trying to say, oh, you know, it's just a Russian fighter. Um, so that, that was an interesting case as well, that, that this strange looking cr- tailless craft Without, with uh, these short stubby wings and this huge uh, plume of orange, red and white flames coming out the back of it. And then and the, the intelligence people are just trying to say, oh yeah, you just saw a Russian aircraft. But that's quite a detailed case as well. And that was quite interesting. And actually on the cover of Flying Saucer Fever, uh, for people who have seen the cover, there's a picture of a B-36 Peacemaker, which was a, a huge um, six propeller uh, four jet engined um, nuclear bomb, um, bomber. It's a huge you know, aircraft. I think it had like 15 crew members on board. And this this aircraft was being watched from the ground flying over over an, an airfield um, in, in the South of America. Um, and 
as they as they looked at it from the ground, there was one UFO near it, but also another one which appeared to be in between the tail of the aircraft and the and the trailing edge of the wing. So it was nestled in between, you know, right next to the aeroplane. And of actually of the of the um, intelligence file to do with the case, so the, the investigation, the actual bit that's available publicly is only a very small proportion of the overall case. And the intelligence officer who actually was on the ground, he was one of the witnesses. He was also the person who actually had to come up with this file to pass it on to Blue Book. Um, and he reckoned it was one of the biggest kind of case, you know, case files that was ever was ever dreamt up in terms of what was sent out. And it was something like 70 odd pages. And yet only a few of the pages actually remain. So you just have to wonder what was in the rest of the pages. You know, you would love to see the crew uh, kind of reports oh, what yeah. they saw from the airplane because they were right, right next to this thing, whereas they don't appear. It's only the ground witnesses actually appear in the intelligence files, which is a real shame. So you just have to wonder, you know, what's going on there. So that, that's an interesting case as well. Um, and then, of course, also the cover, which we, we talked about earlier, about the, the Gloucester Meteor pilot that's on the front of uh, the cover of Intercept and Identify, um, which is the 1953-1954 cases. But also in that book, uh, Kelly Johnson, who was um, the chief uh, engineer of Lockheed, uh, he turns out that he saw one from his ranch, but it's also in conjunction with a, a U.S. Navy um, Constellation aircraft that was up in the air at the time, and the and the crew on board that saw the same thing. So you've got these kind of you know um, multiple witness sightings, uh, and that's quite an interesting case as well. So and that happened um, when did that happen? That that happened in nineteen fifty three. So yeah, December nineteen fifty three that happened. So yeah, the, the, there's you know. There's various cases peppered through these books, which some of them, you know, people may have never come across before when they read them. Uh, but you know, they're really interesting in their own right, uh, and I think they, they deserve more of an airing that they have in the past. Because a lot, as I said before, a lot of these these cases I've never come across them before. Uh, they've obviously been buried away mm. in the blue book files and the documentation. And if they have appeared in print before, it's only been maybe a few lines and you know out of a you know a huge book. But they, they deserve much more. Do you have uh, any idea through all these books any um, let's see verified speeds that were just mm. you know non? Oh yeah, we couldn't have yeah. done it. Uh, yeah. And and what was like the highest speed of any thing that? you can recall right offhand. So most of the cases, if you, turn, if you look at the kind of late 40s, early 1950s, um, the American all-weather interceptors, and I'm talking about the F-94 Starfire at this time, it was a two-seat Lockheed jet fighter, and that was the standard all-weather interceptor, and it could do about 600 miles an hour. It wasn't supersonic, but it could do about 600 100 knots. And these things were outpacing it you know, twice the speed of it. So straight away, you can tell that, the, and this is even faster than the, the fastest aircraft at the time, uh, the record-breaking aircraft. So you can tell from then that these things were demonstrating speeds that were you know, unknown to, to humankind. Uh, it was, it, they were definitely beyond what, was, what was, you know, people were capable of, whether it was American aircraft or it was Russian aircraft or British or, or wherever. And then there are other cases of things even faster. Uh, I, I can't give you a figure off the top of my head, you know, particular yeah. figures, but some of them were really quick. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes they, they say that they just disappeared off into the heavens. Um, and sometimes they they, disc they um, almost demonstrate 
fantastic rate of climb as well. In the George Gorman case from October 1948, um, the thing actually, the, the light basically just goes upwards and he's trying to fly after it. Uh, he's climbing in his F-51 Mustang and he gets to the point where the engine can't basically to propel him upwards any further. It, it goes into what they call an engine stall and he drops out of the right. sky. You know, because this you just can't chase after this thing. His aircraft's just not powerful enough to chase after it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I bring that up um, a lot of times when you see, like, images, people have seen things like this, and then, you know, the characteristics of travel um, and unusual maneuvers and things like that yeah. um, that people have seen. And then I talk to someone, and they'll say, oh, you know, what we're what everybody's seeing is – just military craft that we're not we're not aware of yet, and then I I, I kind of like everyone forgets the his, history and you know what people have been seeing for you know many generations um, that defy uh, some of them defying what we could do with the top of our technology today mm-hmm. that people were seeing back in the 1940s say you know. Yeah. If they, if they, these things were kind of, you know, high technology aircraft that either America was inventing or the Russians were experimenting with or some other nation around the, around the world, then surely with that evidence of these things by now. So you can't write off, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the early 19, the, the, sorry, the early 1950s or the late 1940s sightings as experimental aircraft because, you know, they were documented now they would be in history books by now yeah. um, even if even if there were failures uh, and they'd been written off surely this information would have come out by now you only have to look at the gestation period of the stealth the f117 or the b2 stealth bomber to know that you know there's a certain time lag between them being developed built flown and then being publicly unveiled um, you know, even some experimental Russian aircraft from the 50s and 60s, they might have been fairly unknown to most Western people. Uh, but the air intelligence you know, um, assets in, in, in NATO and in, in America, they were still aware of these things, you know, years before a lot of them were made unveiled publicly. So the, these kind of like explanations for UFOs back in the 40s and 50s simply don't wash. And you can't blame drones back then because drones yeah. in those days were full-size aircraft practically. Yeah. Um, you know, the <laughs> yeah. drones were, were uh, V-1. Um, the, the, Ameri- the U.S. Navy were experimenting with copies of the V-1 flying bomb. It was called the JB-2 Loon. That was a drone. Uh, the Russians had turbojet-powered uh, air- like aircraft-sized drones um, that, that they were experimenting with in the early 50s. But you know, th- those kind of things didn't and couldn't maneuver or go as quick as some of the things that were reported. So, yes, okay, you might be able to write off certain things nowadays as drones, but certainly not back then. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I think as we move on through our technology, it will be, I mean, tougher and tougher to figure Mm. things out. I mean, look at Starlink for one. I mean, so many people think that's, you know, a UFO. A friend of mine, like, contacted me. You can't believe what I saw, you know, and, uh, out in uh, he was in Arizona, I think, at the time. But you know, it's just really hard to. Uh, it's going to be more difficult, and CGI is going to get better, and it's going to be harder and harder to uh, know what's real and what's not. And that's oh yeah, 
for someone people, just people send out. yeah people send me pictures and people send me video um you know they'll direct message me and, and send me things and say you know Graham, what do you think this is i'm not a photo expert you know I, I can't really say what they are and really my opinion at the end of the day is no worse no better than anybody else's so yeah. you know it, it's I mean, I, I don't, I don't really want to say to people, look, don't send me stuff like this because I'm, I can't really help you. But it, effectively, that's what it boils down to because I'm not, you know, I'm not qualified to be able to say to somebody, yeah, that's real, or yeah, that's a, that's a forgery, or uh, uh, that's what that is. I simply don't know. They'd be better off sending those to people who can, you know, look at and analyze imagery, you know, professionally. Right. I'm trying to. Uh, someone asked if we discuss Cape Verde, Missouri. Uh, case and I think that was nineteen. Wasn't that very early on? Uh, are you familiar with that case? Not of hand, unless it unless it's under a different name or something, or it's got like a, you know, people yeah. associated with it like, that. I'm, I had you know, a called. granddaughter uh, on this show that discussed that uh, of supposedly Reverend, or I believe that's what it was that her grandfather was. It anyway. It's an it's it's interesting uh, to answer Joni's. Uh, question um uh, no it doesn't really fit into what we're discussing this evening what are some of the really interesting european cases in any, any of these books that uh you can think of european cases this well the the, the gloucester meteor um case the flight of tenant james saladin the the october 1954 case that, that you can see on the picture behind me you know that that's that's one of the classic ones from back then there were other kind of british crews who on transatlantic flights that were seeing strange things um about that time there was a crew that were flying over labrador i mean it's not quite europe but it's a you know it's, it, there were a, a boac uh, that's a, a a british airline a transatlantic airline and they saw something that it was like seven seven objects of which one of them, the biggest one, was actually changing shape. Uh, so it mm. started off in one particular shape, and then it kind of morphed into something else. And the official explanation was that they they were seeing Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, Mars morphs all the time. Yeah, yeah. and it also has a lot of uh, six other objects with it. So you know, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah, I, I love some of the uh, explanations. It's been, you know, the swamp, swamp gas swamp explanations gas, yeah. over over the years, how ridiculous they they can be. You know, Venus, Venus is can be tricky, you know, I mean, because it's so bright in the sky and and, uh, you know, people see that and like at first you think, like, what is that? You know, that type of thing. Sometimes it could be like that. And that's the thing, though, isn't it? it it'll fool, you know some of us some of the time but if you're a, a professional let's say an airline pilot and you're flying you know day after day night after night on the same kind of scheduled run because that's what they usually do they would fly to the same cities most of the time they would see that these kind of things on a regular basis so they would see venus they would see other stars they would see yeah. um that you would see other aircraft in the skies they would see strange weather you know they would know if you were flying long enough um, even if you were flying transatlantic or you were flying over America or wherever, you'd, you'd recognize these things for what they were after a certain period of time. If you were a new crew or you were a new pilot, then fair enough. But if you'd had you know, hundreds or thousands of hours under your belt, then you would know you know what you were looking at. And also, yeah. more importantly, you would know what you, you'd seen for the first time and it was something out of the ordinary. And these yeah. were the pilots who were coming forwards and saying, look, this is not what you're saying it is you know this is something different and yet they were still being written off as 
you know, Venus swamp, well, swamp gases later on, uh, weather balloons, you know, other aircraft, cockpit reflections, all these kind of things were, were being trotted out to explain things, which when you look at the, the testimony and you look at the information that were passed to the intelligence officers to, re, to be passed up to Blue Book and the other, and Sign and Grudge, et cetera, that um, they just don't, it just doesn't stack up, I'm afraid. Yeah. I know it's kind of an insult to people that mm. have, you yeah. know, they, they, take a chance and come forward and talk about what they've seen. And then, yeah. you know, they're, they're kind of insulted by saying, no, you saw, you know, you saw Venus, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's all true. it was is, well, I didn't know Venus could, you know, do right angle turns at 2000 miles an hour, mm. you know, that type of thing. You know I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. And I think it's just getting that, I don't know, you want to call it debunking or whatever it is, getting that word out there and getting it in print and whatever it is and kind mm. of deflates, anyone's uh, testimony yeah it's just basically just getting keeping a lid on the situation and just trying to diffuse it and um, just diminish its you know importance yeah. uh, and just say look you know nothing to see here move on and that's all it was i guess yeah and they, how they much couldn't explain had... themselves so you know just just like you know, just say oh yeah you're just saying things yeah and how much have you had to drink and all that type of thing exactly right? yeah yeah uh graham where can someone get a hold of you i know you're so, on uh, twitter yeah so yeah so uh at border 750 is my twitter handle um if you look for me on amazon if you just put my name into, the, into an amazon search engine then you'll 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 see the book titles come up that way that's the easiest way but if you look at my bio on 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 uh, twitter you'll find my website there as well so it's easier just to go that way yeah excellent well i hope to have you back on again you're always really a great guest yeah, and thank you it's really enjoyable and um i i called you i'm i'm gonna embarrass you I called you the Dave Marler of the UK. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't. I wouldn't label myself in the same um, universe as Dave Marler. He's he's alone to himself. He's uh, he's he, he's a great guy, and he's got a great thing going with uh, with this new initiative that he's got to digitize. I know. It's pretty exciting. Uh, all, all the documentation. Yeah. Yeah. Well worth great. Worth yeah. Support, yeah, yeah. Supporting that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. You, you take care. Yeah. Cheers, Martin. Bye bye. All right. Bye now. All right, everyone, so why don't you jump over to our other stream. We have Brandon Fugel coming on in a couple of minutes. And for those of you just listening to this, uh, thank you and keep your eyes to the sky. Mm -hmm.